0: When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here, just as you promised you would be. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. That sentence uh, from Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is said to have set his face toward Jerusalem, is often seen as the tipping point of his life story. What came before is, in some sense, prologue, and now we begin the journey to the climax. Phase one is over, and now Jesus turns resolutely to phase two to the cross, to the resurrection to those great and mighty acts that accomplish the salvation of sinners. And it's interesting, the gospel writers are often criticized as biographers for the lopsided nature of their stories. In two of them, of course, we get no birth or childhood stories at all. And on balance, they spend fully half of their length on just the last week of Jesus' life. For example, Luke here has Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem that is beginning to look death square in the eyes in only chapter 9 of his 24-chapter gospel. It seems as though he's just begun and he's already looking forward to the end. And yet in reality, that week in Jerusalem, those mighty acts that accomplished the salvation of sinners, that week has been what Jesus has been aiming toward for all time. That's why the gospel writers focus on them. The cross and the empty tomb have been Jesus's aim, not just the whole time he's been alive, but since the foundation of the world. You see, Luke isn't just using a cool cinematic image here. Although you can see Jesus in sort of extreme Clint Eastwood style close-up, jaw firm and eyes steeled, Luke isn't just painting a picture when he says that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. Luke is in fact reaching way back in time to an image used in the age of prophets and kings to show us that what Jesus is about to accomplish has always been his mission. And that his single-mindedness is good news for sinful people like you and me. So, way back in time, in the age of prophets and kings, there was a prophet named Ezekiel. And you've probably heard of Ezekiel most likely in conjunction with his most famous prophecy about a valley full of dry bones— But Ezekiel does much more in the pages of scripture than narrate that compelling vision. Ezekiel was a weird guy. Or at least he did a lot of weird things. So weird, in fact, that there is an actual academic literature contributed to by multiple scholars diagnosing Ezekiel as a paranoid schizophrenic. This is a real thing that exists. And you can kind of see why. We read a little bit from chapter 4 of Ezekiel this morning. He hears the Lord tell him to draw a picture of Jerusalem on a brick, and then to play war with it, using an iron griddle as a wall, setting up camps. I mean, it stops short of telling him exactly where to place the little green soldiers and the little tan soldiers, but it's pretty detailed, this war game. And then he's told to lie down on his left side for 390 days. And then on his right side for 40 additional days. 430 days just lying on his side. And during this time, he's supposed to eat what you and I would think of as gross food cooked over cow manure. It's all highly evocative and symbolic. Perhaps the most moving thing that Ezekiel does is later in his life... He intentionally and willingly chooses not to mourn the death of his wife. Why does Ezekiel do these things? Well, it's not because he's a paranoid schizophrenic. He's just doing what prophets did. He's sending a message from God. Now, a lot of times, at least in the prophecies that we are most familiar with, the prophets would simply preach, right? They'd go and stand before a king or whomever and announce the thing that God had given them to announce, usually to call out the people's unfaithfulness and to warn them of a coming judgment of God. Now, they'd illustrate their sermons, sometimes with profound imagery like Ezekiel's Description of the reanimation of this valley full of dry bones, or Nathan's story about the rich man stealing the poor man's lamb when he confronts King David. But these would be sermons like you and I would understand them words preached with the mouth. Sometimes, though, like these examples that I've just shared with you from Ezekiel, their messages were to be sent. In something more like performance art, the actions of the prophet were meant to be a word for the people. For instance, the prophet Hosea was told to marry a prostitute knowing that she would be unfaithful to him in order to preach to the people of Israel about their unfaithfulness to their covenant husband, Yahweh. And in the same way, God telling Ezekiel to lie on his side for these lengthy periods of time was supposed to itself preach to the nation. The Lord explains this in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment, so long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. Israel and Judah were supposed to get a message about their coming judgment from this physical sermon from Ezekiel. The, The war playing with the model of Jerusalem is a little more obvious. It's again a prediction of coming judgment in the form of war. Jerusalem will, in fact, be besieged. And overrun, and the people will be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And finally, Ezekiel's refusal to mourn his wife is also a sermon to Israel, telling them not to mourn the loss of their beloved temple. So Ezekiel is accustomed to participating bodily in these sermons to the people of Israel. He is preaching to them by doing physically what God is telling him to do. And with that in mind, I want to turn your attention to Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, in which Ezekiel is again called to do something for God. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord. Behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. And all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. That's God giving Ezekiel a mission. Go and preach. And why? What what message is Ezekiel going to deliver to Jerusalem? A message of judgment. Judgment. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you, both righteous and wicked. Later in that chapter, the Lord describes the sword being sharpened and then coming down and slashing this way and that. And one thing that it is definitely describing is the coming judgment of the Lord poured out on this nation that is going to be carried away into exile. This is the just result of Israel's sin, the deserved punishment for their continued unfaithfulness despite years of prophetic warning. But that's not the only judgment that this vision has in mind. This sword of judgment is a prophetic vision much larger than just the Babylonian routing of Jerusalem. It points further forward to the judgment of God being poured out on the sin of the whole world. And the clue is in the language. Language that's picked up hundreds and hundreds of years later by Luke in his gospel. Son of man. Set your face toward Jerusalem. This is a command to the prophet Ezekiel, given and obeyed in the 6th century B.C. But thankfully, and here I have good news for you sinners, Ezekiel is not the only one who would set his face to Jerusalem. Ezekiel, here called son of man, by this setting of his face toward Jerusalem and going there to proclaim the judgment of God on the sinful world, points toward, points forward to Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of man who sets his face toward Jerusalem, but he goes there to bear the judgment of God on the sins of the world. Ezekiel to proclaim it, Jesus to bear it. Ezekiel went to Jerusalem to proclaim bad news. You people are sinners. When Jonah was sent to Nineveh, he was sent with a similar message. Repent or face the wrath of God. Jerusalem to Ezekiel refused to repent and so was given over to Babylonian captivity. But Nineveh, repentant, enjoyed God's mercy. When God saw what they did, how... They turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The people of Nineveh repented and believed in the promises of God. So come, let us confess our sins. Repent. And believe in those promises made flesh in Jesus Christ the Savior, that the full weight of God's judgment is exhausted on Him. When we read in Ezekiel 21 that God's sword of judgment will never be sheathed again, this is why it has been exhausted. It doesn't have to be readied for any other use. There is now, as Paul wrote to the Romans, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. It is all used up. There are no more swings left in the sword. The wrath of God has been poured out in full, but not on you. On the willing and able shoulders of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Ezekiel went to Jerusalem to proclaim bad news. Jesus went there to be good news. Here's another word from the time of prophets and kings, this time a song. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, writes Isaiah. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Ezekiel set his face to Jerusalem to announce the problem. Jesus did so to become the solution. From what was pointed to all those years ago, proclaimed by a weirdo who was called to lie on his side for more than a year, that proclamation was brought to fruition by the Son of God on the tree at Golgotha and is still good news for you today, right now. Yes, sin will be judged. Our holy God cannot abide iniquity. But that righteous sword of God's judgment will not come down on you. It came down once for all on Jesus Christ. Your sin on his shoulders laid to rest forever. But it was only the sin that was dead forever. Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. And in him, so were you. You were dead in trespasses and sins, just like Jerusalem. You were destroyed, just like the temple. But God, whose character is always to have mercy, sent his beloved and perfectly righteous only son to live for you, to die for you, to be raised again for you. In Jesus, you are rescued. In Jesus, you are alive. In Jesus, you are made new. Jesus' face is set on your redemption. Thanks be to God. Amen.